More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to today's edition of the Rush Limbaugh Show podcast. It is wonderful to be here on a special edition of Open Line Friday, the eve of Dan's Bake Sale. And we are going to take you back 28 years to an unforgettable day in Fort Collins, Colorado. Some members of Team EIB will be joining the program to share a few stories that you've not heard before. And we've also got a fun surprise for callers today, which we'll announce later on. So give us a call at 1-800-282-2882. It is a, a thrill to be here today. And what a difference a day makes our top story of the day obviously the uh, the battle between israel and uh, hamas in gaza uh, things have changed in the overnight hours as a ceasefire has been achieved and that is uh, that is big news it was a ceasefire not brokered by the united states of america but uh, rather brokered by the egyptians who were able to uh, get the uh, the operations paused uh, by the uh, the israeli the idf and, and of course uh, what's gone on with the, uh, the terrorist organization Hamas. Uh, the Democrats are seeing a tectonic shift on this conflict uh, as things are starting to move in a, in a different sort of way. Remember yesterday we were telling you about uh, the uh, violence on the streets of Los Angeles uh, as uh, Palestinian uh, protesters, activists, what have you, uh, started attacking uh, Jewish diners at a, at a sushi restaurant, uh, including the smashing of a window uh, at a Jewish-owned store. Well, we've seen arrests in Times Square over a similar sort of melee that took place. A Jewish man was beaten. Uh, Pro-Palestine, pro-Israel protesters clashing in the midst of Times Square. And uh, last night, in the wake of this ceasefire, brokered not by the Biden administration, let me underscore that, not by the Biden administration, but rather Egypt, President Biden issued a statement from the White House that he spoke with the Israeli Prime Minister, that is the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. He said this. My conversation with President Netanyahu, I commended him for the decision to bring the current hostilities to a close within less than 11 days. You know, we've held intensive high-level discussions, hour by hour, literally. Egypt, the Palestinian Authority, and other Middle Eastern countries 
with the aim of avoiding the sort of prolonged conflict we've seen in previous years when the hostilities have broken out. You, you, you are correct if you heard him refer to uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as President Netanyahu. But what is a, what is the difference, really? A president, a prime minister. We're just lucky he got the name right uh, attached to the prime minister uh, of Israel. Rush laid out a, a perfect argument as to why this ceasefire just isn't going to work. It hasn't changed in all my life. The way this story plays out hasn't changed. Ceasefire, the last thing that needs to happen is a ceasefire. And one of the reasons why is that I am the mayor of Realville. And I'm going to tell you, this conflict is like every other. There isn't going to be a solution. There isn't going to be a winner until one side militarily defeats the other. This is a world governed by the aggressive use of force. We do not live in a world governed by speeches and words and doctors and clean water and all that. Now, in America, we may think we can live in a world like that, touchy-feely, but... The rest of the world doesn't operate that way, as we are seeing whenever we go. You could go get videotape of any Israeli-Hamas conflict, war, whatever, from 10 years ago, 5 years ago. Play those tapes today, would be no different. The coverage would be no different. The cameras, the pictures would be no different. The commentary would be no different. And the never-ending, incessant calls for a ceasefire would be no different, because it always happens, too. We must stop the violence, Mr. Limbaugh. That's something that we all must work to. Yeah, we've been trying to stop the violence my whole life. In fact, we've been trying to stop the violence before I was born. This violence, we've been trying to stop it. It's not going to stop until one side can't perpetrate any anymore. And who knows if that would be allowed to happen. You have to understand that war is Hamas' source of income. When they attack Israel, they know that the U.S. is going to rush in with bags of money. A ceasefire is Hamas's way of demanding more money from the U.S. in exchange for the ceasefire. I've seen this. There's nothing new about this. And in fact, there's a real danger in that, too, because real people are losing their lives. Real terrorism is taking place here. And it's made to look like an ordinary, everyday occurrence, which over there, it almost is. I, being serious here, uh, being uh, sarcastic, I'm telling you, this is going to keep happening, even if there is a ceasefire. It's going to happen in a week or two or a month or two. Until Hamas is militarily defeated, this is going to continue. It's just the way of the world, folks. Military conflicts do not end with negotiation until after one side's beaten into oblivion and unable to conduct military operations. It's just the way. Now, I know many of you who are under 40 may not have been taught that, and that may sound too mean and, and, and angry and militaristic, and, and all, but it's really been the way of the world. Uh, the Japanese, you, there was a way I think called World War II, and it involved uh, fighting in Europe and fighting in, uh, in the Pacific, And we won in both places. For example, the Japanese, we beat the Japanese. I mean, people who make Walkmans and stuff, you might, PlayStation, you might have trouble. We did. We were at war with them at one time. And we beat them. And there was a surrender. It took place on the USS Missouri. You can visit the USS Missouri now. It's a museum ship. And the Japanese surrendered. And But it wasn't because there were negotiations between us and, and the emperor of Japan. 
is because we wiped them out. You might have heard about this. We dropped a couple nuclear bombs on them. I'm sure you've been taught that. We dropped a couple nuclear bombs. You've probably been taught that we did it just for the fun of it because we're mean-spirited extremists. But we actually did it. In, it was in a war when we dropped those bombs. And back in those days, you, you won wars by killing civilians. The same thing in Germany. When we bombed Germany, we were not bombing military targets. We, there wasn't any conflict resolution 101 back. I know this is going to be shocking news to some of you, but we actually, and not just us, everybody targeted civilians, and that's how you won a war. And, and the Japanese then surrendered, and they signed the terms of surrender. And they also pledged to form a new government. And it all happened because we beat them with guns and bullets and rockets and missiles, battleships and airplanes. And that's been the way of the world. There hasn't been a military conflict successfully ended without one side being run out of town, humiliated, defeated, or beaten down to the point they have no will to continue. And it's the same thing here. So this ceasefire means nothing in the long term. And you will continue to be told that it was words and negotiation and diplomacy and statesmanship which solved the Israeli-Palestinian crisis. And it isn't solved. And it hasn't been stopped. And nobody's won it yet. This is outreach. Outreach to the young. Outreach to the youth. You've got to talk to them on a level they understand. And then you build on that. That's how it's done. And the reality is, uh, the main party involved in this battle between Hamas and Israel uh, is not present at that at that table, is not part of that conversation, and it's Iran. We know that to be the case because Iran sponsors Hamas. They are a proxy for, for, for Iran. Hezbollah in Lebanon is a proxy for Iran. The Iranian-backed forces in Syria are proxies for Iran. And so when you have a ceasefire brokered by Egypt, Egypt's not getting rocketed by Hamas. And if, and if Hamas was stupid enough to fire rockets into Egypt, al-Sisi would roll right into, into Gaza and it wouldn't be funny. And they know that. They absolutely know that. So you have the president of the United States and Joe Biden uh, allegedly working this deal, brokering this deal. Do you know where Tony Blinken was last night? I, I know where he was. Do you know where he's been for the last four or five days? He parachuted into Ukraine to, to talk about how we support Ukraine. Yeah, sure thing. Right on, Tony, since we uh, greenlit the Nord Stream 2, uh, 2 uh, pipeline deal with the Germans. Yeah, we, 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 got, we got Ukraine's back, don't we? Not quite. Tony Blinken was in Scandinavia. He was in Denmark. And the, the, the headline moving today is that he told the people of Greenland, the prime minister of Greenland, that we're not interested in buying Greenland. As a, as a reference to the old Trump era. But here's the thing. You don't have a secretary of state on the ground talking to Bibi Netanyahu. You have the president talking to him on the phone, thinking he's talking to President Netanyahu on the phone. And the reality is, let's be honest here, folks. If Bibi Netanyahu said no, Joe Biden, the president of the United States, the quote, most powerful person in the world, had no hand to play. He granted that he was going to restock the Iron Dome uh, weapons system. But what was Biden going to say? No. Joe Biden was unmasked as not having the power that he thinks he has as president because it was the Egyptians that brokered the deal. And the reason why the reason why he had to beg Netanyahu to to wind down the operations is because he's desperately trying to sell out the Mideast to Iran in Vienna. 
on their nuclear deal to, to remove all the sanctions, to put all the money in the Ayatollahs and the Mullahs' pockets. And what do you think is going to happen when he announces that deal and two months later Hamas has got a restocked supply of missiles courtesy of the, uh, of the Islamic Republic of Iran? This is just an operational pause for all intents and purposes. In fact, when when Netanyahu was first approached by Biden to think about winding this down, he said, I'm not done with my operations yet. Once I end my operations, then we'll talk about a ceasefire. That's what he granted him. Joe Biden and Tony Blinken, they don't have to live in that neighborhood. Netanyahu does. When we come back, history shows us why we should stand with Israel. I am Brett Witterbull, your guide host today. On the EIB so let's take a look at what history shows us about the state of Israel and the United States of America. Welcome back to the Rush Limbaugh Show. I am Brett Witterbull. Rush often said that Israel is the lone outpost of democracy in the Middle East. And I think we can uh, agree with that. There are, there are uh, people who live in Israel from all sorts of backgrounds, and they have more rights there in Israel regardless of their religion, uh, regardless of their identity, than any other place in the Middle East. In fact, our own Dean Karyanis, a.k.a. Coco Jr., the host of the History Author Show on iHeartRadio, has an op-ed in the Washington Times on this very topic. It's titled, Historically, Does America Have a Better Ally Than Israel? In it, he not only quotes me, which was very nice from a couple of days ago, he looks back at some of the unsavory regimes that we've had to partner with against mortal enemies like Iran, writing that anti-Semites cheer every time someone professes neutrality between Hamas and Israel. But the only option for America is to stand with Jerusalem. Now, Rush took a call from Jerusalem that made a key point. If the Jewish state disappeared tomorrow, the Iranian-backed terrorists will come after us next. We'll start in Jerusalem. This is Elvin, and I really appreciate your call. Hello. Hi there, Rush. Good to speak with you. Thank you for having my call. Oh, you bet, uh, sir. Having been born in America and having lived in America for many years, I understand very much the American psyche. But I wanted to share with people they should understand this war that's going on between Israel and Hamas. If one excludes the moral component and just looks at it from a purely personal safety point of view. If, heaven forbid, something were to happen to Israel and would no longer be here to fight this enemy, the folks in America need to understand we are next. We are the great Satan. And um, we will have terrorism at our doorstep. And it's not only you know, someone else's war. What's going on at the moment is Gaza. Those folks are fighting America's war, and people need to realize that. Because without Israel, heaven forbid, Elvin, I actually think that this is a great point. People, and I'm going to include the Obama administration in this since what they do is what matters. I think they do have a bit of a superiorist view of this, as though there's something taking place way far away. No impact on us, really. They don't even view Israel as an ally. They say that because they have to, but I guarantee you this bunch does not look at it. Israel is a problem, and I'm not speaking in religious it's ideology, folks. Israel is a problem. For John Kerry, don't get to pick a liberal Democrat. It's a problem. And this conflict with Hamas or the Palestinians, however it manifests itself on a day-to-day basis, it's just it's over there. It's a thorn in our sides. It's something they've got to deal with. But they don't think it has any practical application to the United States at all. 
the first point you made, Elvin, is just take the religious components out of this. Just look at it as a war between two sets of human beings. It is a devastating thing for people on both sides. And it is something that can't go on. It has to stop. And that Israel is taking on an enemy that also views us the same way. Israel is the nation daily fighting these people. And the point is, if Israel loses, forget Jew and Arab, forget liberal, if Israel loses this, then we are next. We are. He's right. We are the great Satan. We are despised and hated because it is thought that we make Israel possible. So it's not something distant and far away that has no impact on us. That is why so many of us on our side do not understand why this regime cannot possibly understand how Israel is an ally of ours. We were told from the jump that Joe Biden was this uh, genius when it came to foreign policy. Been in been in Washington, D.C. for 40 years, understood all the players around the world. I mean, that was the sales pitch, right? That was the sales pitch. He's bringing in these uh, long, experienced experts like John Kerry uh, and, and, and the rest of the, uh, of the lot there in, in Washington, D.C. now. And isn't it curious that the nations of the Middle East have watched a progression over the period of time, say, say from 1979, right? Say from 1979... Uh, to now. They, they saw Iran become a radicalized uh, outpost of terrorism. They've seen dictators uh, come and go. We saw the attempted appeasement uh, by the bad guys in the Middle East under the Obama-Biden administration with the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, we deposed uh, Hosni Mubarak, or at least the Obama administration pushed to depose Hosni Mubarak, and they replaced him with the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood. Y- you saw what the Obama-Biden administration did in Libya turned it into an absolute failed state where you've now got open slave markets there in that country. And what did Donald Trump try to do? He tried to extricate us from the Middle East, said we were not going to be stationed in the Middle East, weren't going to be the world's policemen in the Middle East. And as a consequence, he did the Abraham Accords. And the testimony to the Abraham Accords is this. How many Arab states are jumping in on the side of Hamas to help them out? When Jordan tried to send in aid to the people of Gaza, who were the victims, just watch CNN or MSNBC, Hamas was shooting at the aid convoys. They wouldn't let the aid come in. So Donald Trump was labeled as somebody in Putin's pocket, was labeled as somebody who was uh, out of touch, corrupt, didn't know what he was doing. Yeah, he didn't know what he was doing, but he got those Abraham Accords, and you're not seeing other Arab states come after Israel. Why? Because they're tired of the problem as well. They want to trade. And yeah, I will say it. They want to trade with Israel. They would rather see a stable region. You want to live in a bad neighborhood? Who wants to live in a bad neighborhood? Nobody wants to live in a bad neighborhood. And so what do you have from Joe Biden? You have a a man willing to sell Israel out, willing to sell out whatever he's got to sell out to appease Vladimir Putin and the Russians, whether it's ignoring the colonial pipeline hack, whether it's uh, greenlighting the Nord Stream 2 uh, gas pipeline that's going into Germany, whether it's appeasing them uh, by going soft on Iran and trying to pay Iran off to get back into the nuclear deal. How does any of that make sense or make America stronger? And here is the key takeaway. When you look at what's taking place there with our ally in Israel, an ally that we first recognized. Harry Truman did it in 48. 
the real risk of Iran having a nuclear weapon isn't just that Iran could deploy a nuclear weapon, which is the obvious thing. But what they can engage in is nuclear blackmail. They can engage in nuclear blackmail. They can threaten to strike places with their bomb in exchange for payoffs, considerations, what have you. If the mullahs in Tehran, if the ayatollahs in Tehran are able to get their hands on a nuclear weapon and it's an average Wednesday afternoon there in Israel and the stock market is running and they suddenly throw a a, a wrench into the process by saying, listen, we're thinking about dropping a nuke on, on Israel. They'll crater the markets. They'll create instability in the region. And then what is Israel supposed to do? We all believe they probably have nuclear weapons. What, they're going to they're going to exchange nuclear weapons uh, across that region in a regional nuclear war. None of the Arab states want any part of that. And we were headed down the right pathway until suddenly Joseph R. Biden and Kamala Harris came in and fundamentally transformed our foreign policy overnight and made us 100 percent less safe. But the mullahs 100 percent more happy. And the Russians 100% more rich. Heck of a job. When we come back, Fredo doesn't believe all women. Details straight ahead. Brett Witterbull on the Rush Limbaugh Show on the EIB Network. You know, hypocrisy is a standard issue uh, requirement if you're somebody on the progressive left. And uh, uh, one of the people who is most on the progressive left, or one of the most on the progressive left, obviously would be Fredo, that's right, uh, Chris Cuomo. So it's cool that Fredo doesn't apparently believe all women and actively attempted to undermine them, right? Well, no doubt you've uh, heard the reporting uh, in these last hours, CNN admitting that Chris Cuomo inappropriately provided his brother, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, advice on sexual harassment. Now, before you go thinking, Oh, they had a couple of phone calls. He, he was on the phone with them kind of saying, hey, if, it, if I were in your shoes, I would do this or I would do that. No, 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 no. Chris Cuomo was actually on conference calls with the governor's political staff advising the governor and the political staff on the ways to handle the accusations of, uh, of sexual impropriety to be diplomatic. Now, of course, CNN's not going to hold Chris Cuomo to account for any consequences after colluding to cover up his brother's scandals. That's what the Federalist writes. Chris repeatedly ran interference for his brother in the early months of the pandemic by joking around on live television, refusing to ask him questions about those rising nursing home death numbers that resulted in the governor's deadly policy. The anchor repeatedly brought his brother on his show during the peak of the governor's response to COVID-19 in 2020, now claims that any further coverage of the family would be a, a, a conflict of interest, right? Former CNN media reporter, now NBC and MSNBC reporter Dylan Byers chimed in on Twitter to explain CNN's not going to drop their, uh, their, their piece of the Cuomo collection because they had just renewed his contract. So he's safe. Everything's looking good. Everything's looking solid. Well, when CNN anchor uh, Chris Cuomo took part in a series of these strategy calls, that didn't cross the line with his brother and his brother's staff on how the governor should respond to misconduct allegations? Come on. Well, how was it that Chris Cuomo explained it? He explained it like this. It was a mistake because I put my colleagues here, who I believe are the best in the business, in a bad spot. And I am sorry for that. I've never tried to influence this network's coverage of my brother. In fact, I've been walled off from it. This is a unique and difficult situation. 
and that's okay. I know where the line is. I can respect it and still be there for my family, which I must. I have to do that. I love my brother. I love my family. I love my job. And I love and respect my colleagues here at CNN. And again, to them, I am truly sorry. You know who I am. You know what I'm about. And I want this to be said in public. Now, if you didn't do anything wrong, why would you apologize? Well, I know. You set the line. You can move the line here. You can move the line there. You know, Rush was asked, are the Democrats an arm of the media? Mike, Columbia, South Carolina, welcome to the EIB Network, sir. Hello. Hello, Rush. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. But heavens to Murgatroyd, would you please help me make up my mind? Let me explain. Over the years, you've repeatedly said, and I always nod my head in agreement, that the alphabet drive-by media is the propaganda arm of the Democrat Party. Mm-hmm. But I believe I heard you say in your opening segment that that role is actually reversed, that the Democrat politicians are merely the placeholders uh, and the executors of the agenda, that the media is actually the one that's setting. So uh, who's the tail and who's the dog? I actually think that that may be true. I have revised my thinking on that in just the past two to three weeks. I'm considering the structure that it is the Democrats that are an arm of the media, not that the media is an arm of the Democrats. In other words, the foundational base of the progressive movement is in the nationwide media. The Democrat Party are the elected hacks who enforce and introduce politically and legislatively and oppose the things that the Republicans put forth um, in, in a political sense. But the constant always there of progressivism and liberalism is the media and that the Democrat Party itself is an extension of that as opposed to the media being an extension of the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party lost the presidential election, and the Democrat Party has been losing elections since 2010. The media hasn't lost anything. Well, that's not true. The media, they're losing viewers and advertisers and so forth, but they haven't acquiesced to that change. They haven't subjected themselves to it. They are the, I think they are the fuel. They provide the backup and the energy and the support for the Democrats to do what they do. And look, it may be six of one, half dozen of the other when you get right down to it. Why does it matter to you? Why is it such an important thing to you? Well, it kind of struck me. I'm willing to entertain that change. But, you know, another thing that you're always pointing out, especially with your montages, is that the media always seems to be so coordinated. They Mm. use the same words, the same phrases. They pursue or don't pursue the same stories. And... And historically, we've just thought, well, you know, the Democrats are feeding them those talking points, and that's the direction that they go. But if it's the media that's actually formulating and pushing the agenda for the Democrats and and others in the establishment, then who's running the media? How can they be so coordinated unless, uh, I mean, they're not just all getting together. Something They don't, this is the thing, I guess... You know, in my never-ending quest to explain the left to people. And, folks, I'm going to be doing this until my last day here. 
It's an it's a never ending quest. Believe me, my mind changes over the years on on certain things that I believe as I learn more about it. But my point is that it doesn't have to be coordination because they're all of similar mindset. In terms of coordinating the term gravitas or uh, looks bad, much of that is taught in journalism school. But they have their own private chat rooms. Journalists have their own private chat rooms and they get together and chat with each other about just these kinds of things. It could well be that they're gathered in a bar after work consuming adult beverages, and one of them happens to come up with a phrase, and they all like it, and they all start using it, and it spreads. But the point is, they're all so like-minded. They're all so identical. It doesn't take coordination. So I don't think a whole lot of coordination is required because there's not that much diversity of thought in this group of people. You don't have competing intellectual arguments inside the left. You either have acceptance or heresy. And if you're a heretic, they throw you out. And they treat you like a member of the opposition, and you're done for. These people have it all covered, folks, because this is not just a movement. It is a way of life. It's a religion. In another time, I was, uh, I was privy enough to do an internship at CBS News back in the very early 90s. And we, we had access to all these different people, high-profile high people that would come in and talk to uh, college students about journalism and communications and things like that. And one of the people that came by on the very last week that we were there was, was Mike Wallace. And he had a room of about 100 people there, and he asked for a, a survey among the students that were there uh, to hear from him. And he said, how many of you are getting degrees in mass communications or journalism? 95% of the room raised their hands. And he said, that's unfortunate. Uh, to be a great reporter... Or a journalist, you should know stuff about you know, biology, math, science, uh, the law, those sorts of things. He said, I-, I can teach you how to be a journalist. I can t- teach you how to write stories and do reporting in about three months. But you shouldn't go to school to get a degree in that. You should go and get knowledge so that you can then understand how to convey that to people. Conveying it to people is a huge, important thing. You know, we're saving a lot of money for a lot of people with the help of Pure Talk. That's the cell phone company Rush learned about two years ago. What's unique about Pure Talk is their low monthly fee, just $30 for their unlimited talk text and six gigs of data monthly. If you're with Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile, switching to Pure Talk will save you money. In fact, Pure Talk saves the average family of four over $800 a year. And the best part of that is that you don't have to sacrifice coverage. That's because it's on the exact same network as one of those three providers. Switching is easy to accomplish. You can keep your phone, keep your number, and with one cell phone call to Pure Talk, you can get started today. When you do switch to Pure Talk, you get unlimited talk, text, and six gigs of data for just $30 a month. And if you go over on data, they don't charge you for it. When Rush heard the story of Pure Talk and how they handle their customer service all here in the U.S., he started sharing the Pure Talk story, saw it as a benefit to you. You'll get to experience their high level of customer care when you talk to their customer service team. You can do that by making a single phone call on your cell phone, just four digits. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword Pure Talk to save 50% off your first month. That's pound 250, say Pure Talk. You'll have the option to receive a one-time auto-dialed text message from Pure Talk. You're going to love the service. Brett Witterbull, your guide host today on the Rush Limbaugh Show on the EIB Network. 
It is the Rush Limbaugh Show. I am Brett Witterbull, your guide host today on the EIB Network. Coming up in this next hour, we have two special guests joining the program from Team EIB who were at Dan's Bake Sale. They're going to give you perspective on that day that wasn't reflected in the mainstream media. One aspect of that has to do with the crowd size. Here's Rush talking about it. Here comes Dan's Bake Sale. And uh, the billing leading up to it is of a conservative Woodstock, Rush Stock 93, Rush Fest, a right-wing love-in. I'm sure you heard all the terms. Let's talk about what it was. It was all of that, but in the most positive sense. I flew in about 12.30 local time, which was an hour and a half after the bake sale began, I landed at Fort Collins Loveland in EIB-1 and from there took a helicopter over to the community airport in Fort Collins, the little metro airport there. And they flew me over I-25 because when we got on board the helicopter, they said, you won't believe this. There's traffic backed up 25 miles. There's a 25-mile traffic jam. There's seven miles of buses trying to get in there. I said, whoa. I began to worry, is everybody trying to get in going to be able to? Are we going to have some disappointed people because they're not going to get in there? Is this place too small to handle a crunch? So they fly me over, and I got my video camcorder going, folks, and we videotape this. This traffic is stopped on an interstate highway in Colorado. This is not like an interstate highway pouring into a major metro area like the Bay Area or Los Angeles where it is common for traffic to stop on an interstate. This traffic was stopped all to get off at an exit to go into Fort Collins. Uh, we then choppered over the, the bake sale area, and when you see the aerial view of the people down there and then look at, they say the crowd was 20,000, you're going to find that the estimate there is, is way, way low. Uh, Senator Hank Brown of uh, Colorado was there to meet me, and he said this is a bigger party than a Broncos game up at Mile High Stadium, and what's the capacity up there? 78,000. There are people who didn't get in. I feel so badly about this. My good friend Tyler Cox who's the operations director at our Fort Worth affiliate. They chartered a jet at the last minute, and they flew into Cheyenne, Wyoming, and when they got to the highway that was going to take them to Fort Collins, the, the highway patrol said, stop, you can't get there, and they turned them back, and they went back to the airport and never even got near Fort Collins. So there have to be some disappointed people there. Three buses of people got turned back. Uh, Tom Sullivan chartered a jet from Sacramento, as you know, from KFBK. And had they not had a driver who knew the back ro uh, backwoods roads into Fort Collins, they would have not made it. They would have been stuck in that 25-mile traffic jam. So this is definitely more than 20,000 people. Also, folks, you've got to remember this is an eight-hour event. And so taking account at any one time is going to be uh, uh, miss. I think, represented, and it's going to be understandably low. People are moving in and out of the place all the time. We didn't know how many people were coming, and so we don't have a figure that we have to, in terms of our own PR, say was indeed there. We didn't know anything. We were as, as uh, I'm telling you, nobody does things the way we did this. We rolled the dice. We rolled it up. We didn't know what was going to happen. We just have faith in this audience. I have so much faith in the people of America who are this audience. I understand the kind of people who are this audience, and I cringe when they are misrepresented, when they are maligned, and when they are impugned by a media which has not done the proper investigative reporting to find out anything about this show, and including who listens to it. So I was not afraid to suggest to thousands to come to a central location and have a good time. 
The reason that I am trying to focus on the numbers is simply because what we do here is we relentlessly pursue the truth. And I am not accusing anybody of falsely estimating the crowd or purposefully creating a number that's smaller than what it is. It's just hard to know because so many people were moving out. And I don't think anybody has ever done a capacity check on the old town square in Fort Collins anyway. You really don't know how many people squeeze in. And I'm telling you, folks, it was Sardine City in there. It was, I mean, if you were claustrophobic, especially when I was on stage speaking, then you were going to have problems. That is just such an awesome story. It's an amazing line right there. I don't think anybody's ever done a capacity check on the Old Town Square in Fort Collins anyway. That was a momentous moment. Can it be a momentous moment? I just made it one. Um, it was a momentous time uh, in, in the EIB history. And we're coming up on the, the 28th anniversary tomorrow. And so we've got a, a tremendous, tremendous uh, look back at this. And you're going to get information that, that you're not going to otherwise know. Uh, the idea that Rush, and we're talking about this is pre-internet. This is pre-internet. This is organic connectivity. It, you're, you are talking about Rush stock here. You're talking about Dan's bake sale. Plenty more straight ahead. I am Brett Witterbull. I'm your guide host today on the EIB Network. Thinking back to uh, what we've watched play out over these last 100-plus days of the, the Biden-Harris administration, I'm struck by something that we all knew was going to be the case, especially if we were listening to the Rush Limbaugh show all these years. And I am Brett Witterbull, your guide host today on the EIB Network. It's the notion of being consistent and being consistent with your values that rises above everything else. We know as conservatives, we know as constitutionalists, we know as people who love liberty and freedom, that it's not about taking a poll among your friends to figure out what you believe in. There are things that are just right, that are just proper on their face. Freedom, liberty, the right to self-defense, the right to breathe free, free from fear. And when you look at the way this administration that is now in Washington, D.C., has operated, they are operating in a conniving way, in a secretive way, in a way that runs counter to the values of the vast majority of the people in this country. And they're exposing themselves. Coming up in this in this next hour, we've got a very special visit and a very special look back at Dan's Bake Sale. The 28th anniversary is tomorrow. That was a gathering of those Americans who understood what made this country great and who understood that we needed to work at it every single day with Rush as our guide. So in moments, we're going to be joined by two tremendous guests, and we're going to remember that day. Brett Whittable on the EIB Network. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. 
when I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose Podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the juicy. podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. This is an amazing, amazing opportunity that I have to be a part of this program as we have two very special guests with us right now. Diana Alaco, the editor, or the editrix, as Rush would say, of the Limbaugh Letter, and Denise May... The creative director, these two women, the driving force between the publication, and join us now to talk about that historic day 28 years ago tomorrow, Dan's Bake Sale, and also to fill us in on what's going on over at the Limbaugh Letter. Welcome, ladies. Hello. It's good, hey. to, it's good to have <laughs> you guys here. It's wonderful to have you here. Um, Thanks for having us. <laughs> let, let me start first with Diana. The day Dan called the show, you were actually in the studio and kind of planted the seed that got the ball rolling, right? Can you tell us a little behind the scenes of that pivotal moment? Yes, this is something I have really never told before. It was such a small piece of the puzzle, but it was secretly to me very fun as a memory. So let me tell it. Um, as you have heard that phone call where Dan called a Rush, and was complaining about not being able to afford the limbo letter. And Rush was joking about him, about intellectual property rights and copyright infringement. And he had a joke about, hey, we're going to take it out of Johnny Donovan's budget. <laughs> and I 
was in the studio and had just closed the April 1993 newsletter. And in those days, we had a funny line after Russia's signature at the end of the issue. And I had just written, liberals, we are making a profit and don't need your bake sale loot. I had just written that, walked down the hall to the studio. So when Dan was talking, I said into the IFB, hey, he should have a bake sale. And if you hear the recording, Rush went with it. He said, hey, I tell you what we're going to do. We'll have a bake sale. But if I hadn't said that, if I hadn't written that a few minutes before, I don't think it would have unfolded the way it did. So it's a fun memory. It, it, it's an incredible uh, memory. And, and it should be noted, by the way, you know, for, for everything that people would try to take a shot at Rush on, uh, the, the two most senior folks there on the Limbaugh letter, Diana and Denise, female staffers not the sexist stereotype that the that the liberals would have you uh, have you believe it is so true now let me tell you the studio in those days i'm not going to say it felt like a frat party but it was a party back there and but rush really loved the spontaneity he fed off the energy and he wanted people to say things and if you had a good line he did not care who you were. And I had a line at that moment. He did not say, oh, a woman said that or anything like that. It wasn't even in his thinking. He just went with it. And the rest is history. Absolutely. And uh, look, Denise, when did you guys realize that this was something potentially really, really big, the bake sale? So right after Dan's call, it started with more people calling in, uh, an offset printer called saying they were going to print flyers to advertise the big sale. Then um, Root Outdoor Billboard Company from Fort Collins called to say they were going to donate billboards. Uh, the Brennans of the famous New Orleans restaurant offered to send their world-famous chefs, and the calls kept coming. And then when Rush said he would appear, it just snowballed. Um, people were chartering buses and private planes, and you know. And then we knew there were going to be like hundreds of booths. And then, of course, we were tasked with creating our own booth and T-shirts for the Limbaugh letter, and we wound up printing 30,000 extra newsletters that we handed out that day. And, of course, we ran out halfway through the day. Honestly, only Rush is Rush could do predicted how big it was going to be. I mean, it was crazy. It was a crazy time. But, yeah, it just sort of snowballed from there. It's, it, it's incredible. I mean, Diana, let, let's go to the day of the event. Let's go to the day of the bake sale itself. How, how many a team EIB were there? Can you describe? Can you describe it for us? Well, I know James was there and Denise and Kit and Tony Lobianco, if you remember him, he was trolling around looking for me. <laughs> he had rented a sports car and was driving around trying to take advantage of it. That was basically the good time feeling. And when we got there, it was the morning dawned rainy and we were, oh, no, what are we going to do? It was like a state fair that kind of feeling people were pouring in and they did not care about the weather everyone was setting up booths and it was they were selling a lot of fun anti-clinton swag <laughs> at the time and people were just having camaraderie and fun and good time and the big story of the day was the traffic that kept pouring in there were buses that had been chartered a seven mile backup of wow. just the buses and there were 30 miles of cars. A lot of people, as Rush said in that clip you ran, mm -hmm. couldn't get in. 
But the ones that were there, even that Washington Post story, which recently had a snarky article, they admitted at least 80,000 people were there. I think it was more than a, more like 100,000. What, what was this? Would you say, is it fair to say this was a forerunner to the MAGA rallies today? I mean, this was sort of the, the original incarnation of that feeling? I would say that's what we have a special in the current issue of the Limbaugh letter, and that's what we titled it, the first MAGA rally. And it was really significant, Brett, Mm -hmm. because it was the first time, I think, as Russia's audience, we looked around at each other and we knew the numbers of his uh, ratings were going up. We knew all that. But to see visibly, physically, the amount of conservatives that are out there wanting to have a good time of good cheer, engaging in entrepreneurialism. Mm -hmm. I think that was so important because the media then and now has tried to give the impression that we're weird and marginalized (laughs) us. And we saw each other. They could not lie about it. We were great in number. It was so encouraging to us. As conservatives, it's like, wait a minute, look around. Yep. There are a lot of us, and and it's the same spirit of the MAGA rally. It's it's, it's amazing, uh, Denise. One of the one of these stories that we hear about is the weather. It was all kinds of crazy weather, storms and thunderstorms, thunderheads, things like that. But the moment Rush arrived on that chop on that chopper, I heard the uh, the clouds literally parted. He was like a rock star coming in. Yeah, yeah, it was it was crazy. I mean, it certainly it 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 didn't just rain. It was thundering and lightning and hailing. And you know, I was, you know, in a building um, uh, next to the plaza where he was going to appear. And you know, you could see there wasn't a single complaint. There was nobody. Nobody was leaving. I remember everyone was sort of laughing about it. It was sort of part of the experience that this was happening and the, you know, and it, it was belly to belly as far as the eye could see. Like I said, I was up high because I was taking pictures for the Limbaugh letter. Sure. And um, so I remember thinking, you know, look at all these people there. They're, they're like, you know, saying it. And when Rush arrived by helicopter, you know, it was still sort of a little bit raining and, you know, but we could hear the helicopter coming in and people just started cheering and the crowd went crazy and they started chanting rush, rush, rush. And, um, and then that moment, like the sky opened up and the sun started shining. And then I'm just getting, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it, but like, and then rush came with eight mounted policemen that escorted him through the crowd and the cloud parted as he made his way to the stage. And, you know, he, and when he stepped on stage, it was electric. Uh, it just, you know, uh, um, you know, Rush obviously spoke and it was just so exciting. And Dan gave Rush a check and um, I think there was a fortune <laughs> cookie involved. And, um, you know, the rest is history. Right. It, you know, honestly, it just feels like yesterday it was it doesn't seem possible that it was 28 years ago. It's inc- it's inc- just, it, 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 it is yeah. absolutely incredible. Uh, Diana, the main yeah. issue of the Limbaugh letter features Dan's bake sale, as you mentioned. Uh, tell us what's going on at the publication now and talk about what we'll see on the cover of this uh, Limbaugh letter. Well, I just want to say to, thanks to James Golden, who wrote our cover story for the May issue, Modern Day Founding Father. And the whole issue is just wonderful, of course, we are so sad and 
mourning that we have lost our muse, our inspiration, but he, his inspiration lives on. And we have always done original research in the Limbaugh letter. We've always, Rush always wanted us to do uh, compilations of evidence that you can use to arm yourself to argue and win debates with liberals. And we have continued that, that mission. And so we have the coming uh, issue we just finished is uh, the cover story is Legacy of Greatness. And I love this image. It has Rush playing golf with Reagan and Buckley and Maggie Thatcher, and it is one of the happiest moments. It looks like a heavenly golf course. But the point (laughs) of it was that we have such a legacy of people, brilliant, courageous heroes who have fought the same battle we're fighting now, tyranny and totalitarianism. And this is the legacy of, of us, we conservatives, to carry on because this battle has been fought, it has been fought successfully, and we will continue to fight it. And that Limbaugh letter tradition will continue into the future, which is such an important message uh, for the folks out there because they've had questions, and and it will continue in the in the vision of of, of Rush and and all the great all the greats uh, of conservative thought. Uh, as well. I understand uh, a little special offer for the uh, callers happening today here. Uh, Diana, what's going on here? Well, one of the interesting things is if you try and find any information on Dan's bake sale on the internet, it has been scrubbed. At the time, it was mainstream coverage, wall-to-wall, television, all the news coverage, and you cannot find that anywhere. So I wanted to basically cast the net wide to our listeners. If you have any photos, if you have any video, let us reconstruct the historical record that the media cannot erase. So I know you have an email address that people can send this to, but I would love it and we would all love it if people can share their documentation. That's called First documentation first person sources and it is just a wonderful thing we need to have yeah that'd be dan's bake sale at eibnet.com dan's bake sale at eibnet.com it's also up at the website at rushlimbaugh.com and i understand that all the callers on the air today will be getting a free subscription to the limbaugh letter uh, so that is uh, something very very generous as well to uh, to spread the love of of rush limbaugh out far and wide uh, once again, that email address, dansbakesale at eibnet.com. A big thank you to the Limbaugh Letter editor, Diana Alaco, and, of course, creative director, Denise May, for joining us today. Thanks so much for coming by, guys. I, I, it's so wonderful to catch up with you, and I look forward to speaking with you again very soon. Thanks, Brett. Thanks a lot. Take care. Take care. All the best. I'm Brett Witterbull. That was an amazing moment. It is the Rush Limbaugh Show on the EIB Network. And thanks again to uh, Denise Alaco and, of course, uh, Denise, uh, Diana Alaco and Denise May for joining us in that last segment talking about Dan's Bake Sale. Uh, big news coming out now that the mask mandates have been lifted in many areas. Lipstick making a comeback. Lipstick sales jumped more than 80%. You know what that means. It's a return to farting. That's right. If you wonder what I'm talking about, I'll let Rush explain it. I got to thinking, you know, I used to every day preparing this program had a stack of just pure silly stuff lighthearted, silly, human interest stuff. And there's some of that, but I don't ever seem to get to it because all this stuff is so damned intense. I'll give you an example. Back in 1989, 
shortly after we secured the big 89 WLS as an affiliate. And they were one of the first top 10 markets that we got. And I said, you know, this would be funny. So I took to the microphone that day and I discussed the increasing number of automobile accidents taking place in American cities. It was an epidemic back then. There was, it, somehow it made news. There was all kinds of traffic accidents that were happening. There was a spate of them. And I said, folks, I've got a solution. It's not seat belts. It's not this. It's not, it's not sober up. The, the best thing we can do if we want to make highways safer, safer and roads safer is to simply ask women to stop farting in their cars. And I explained uh, that just that one simple step would clean up a whole lot of traffic messes. And went on to other things in the monologue. And finally went to the phones and everyone, what do you mean? What do you mean, women? Well, I, I, well what about men? I, I've never seen um, uh, a man parking his car. Well, have you seen women? All the time. Well, how do you know that that's Because you can see it, I said. This went on for 30 minutes. WLS, Tom Tradup was the general manager. WLS canceled me for 45 minutes until the bit was explained in full. The word was fard, F-A-R-D, and it's French, and it means to apply makeup to the face. But if you say it real fast, I guarantee you, you could play the tape back. I did not say the word you think I said. It's just you never heard of the word fard. Well, that's the kind of lighthearted stuff that uh, we used to have time for. That's awesome. It's one of the great stories that Rush has ever told. I love it. You know what else I love? Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Braden joins us there. Braden, welcome to the program. Hello, Braden. Go ahead. Hey, well, I just want to point out that uh, Pennsylvania has just become the first state to limit the emergency powers of a governor, I think, in history. Huge. Uh, so it's not completely confirmed yet. I guess the approval comes through June, so hopefully they don't screw up this election like they did the last one. But, <laughs> yeah, majority voted in favor of amending our Constitution at the governor. So that's, see, that's a huge point because Tom Wolf, that. Tom Wolf, the people were very upset that Tom Wolf uh, abused his uh, his powers, and uh, you had the legislature come in and, and you know reel it in. In fact, remember we had a call yesterday. Thank you for the call, Braden. It was uh, uh, great to, uh, to to be reminded of that story. We we had a call yesterday where someone said, "Well, what are we going to do? How do we fix all this sort of stuff?" And I I posited to them. I said, "Listen, the answer." You can't fix it like right this minute through the Congress, right? Because you've got a majority for Speaker Pelosi and you've got uh, Schumer uh, with with a uh, with a slight majority because of the Harris vote. But it's that state legislator, state legislature that's going to keep you in the game. Those are the folks that have that power to then get in there and reel in the power that their local and state elected officials have have. And we I'm I'm telling you, we are going to see a reckoning Across the spectrum with these politicians who, who went way too far with the mask mandates and the shutdowns and you can uh, go to a wedding, but you can't dance with your spouse or your or your significant other. You can't enjoy uh, the outside fresh air without wearing a mask. You know, with those masks going away, that's why people are buying more lipstick, right? Well, those masks have been mandated for the better part of a year by these um Tinhorn dictators that operate as governors in many of the states. I mean, pick them. 
You you know who we're talking about. Phil Murphy in New Jersey, Andrew Cuomo in, in New York, Gavin Newsom in California. You look at uh, uh, Pritzker there in Illinois. Uh, and let's not forget Gretch Whitmer, who's still working hard trying to kill that pipeline deal off, kill that pipeline off so that we're even more uh, uh, dependent on foreign energy. And, and this is what's happening. And so what you are now going to see is I think you'll see some retirements from some of these governors. I, I think you're going to see uh, a reticence moving forward, because now what will happen is you'll trim the powers of these emergency declarations so that a future governor can't do this again. Because as I talk to people in my circle of friends and the experts that I talk to, you know, they say, listen, if we have another one of these outbreaks of coronavirus, are we shutting it all down again? Are we restricting everybody? I just don't think the people will. I just don't think they'll they'll put up with it in the way that uh, we just saw play out here for the last uh, what year and three months. I just don't think we're going to see uh, people being as pliable as they have been in the past. People are sick of wearing the masks. And they're sick of the notions of shutdowns and punitive measures from people that we voted into office. Even if we didn't vote for them, uh, they were voted by by the Democratic process into the office of the governorship. And they turned around and and literally just punished the people in their states. So now they're going to be held to account, which is uh, remarkable. What's going on with the uh, Democratic Party and the January 6th commission? We'll talk about it straight ahead. Brett Woodable on the EIB Network. So you'll notice uh, by reading the the tea leaves and by reading the headlines that there's a split in the Democratic Party when it comes to Israel. There's also a split in the Republican Party on the January 6th commission. That's become the uh, the hot topic in the last 24 hours, the source of outrage of so many on uh, the cable news channels. But now there is, it turns out, worry among Democrats that a January 6th probe could divert their agenda Key Democrat chairmen in both chambers of the Congress are not eager to launch committee investigations into the lead up to the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. If legislation to establish the commission fails in the Senate, instead, Democrat lawmakers are already floating the idea of setting up a select committee based on the committee structure of the Benghazi investigation in 2014 to investigate who incited the attack and how. Now, that panel would be controlled by Democrats, unlike that bipartisan commission that the House approved of on Wednesday. So Benny Thompson, House Homeland Security Committee chair, says Congress needs to get to the bottom of what fueled the violence on January the 6th. But if it's not successful moving forward and they decide to go the route of uh, just partisan investigation, well, that's going to make it hard to court pack and, and, and to H.R. 1 and to do all that other stuff, isn't it? Which I think is an awfully interesting bit of a dilemma for the uh, for the Democrats on on Capitol Hill to have to work their way through. I, look, I, I want to know I want to know all about what happened on, on January 6th, including Ashley Babbitt and uh, uh, all the circumstances that were a, a part of, of that issue and release the videos. Let's see it all. Let's 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 see it all. Now shifting to electric cars. See what I did there. Millions of electric cars are coming. Now, what happens to all the dead batteries? When the battery comes to the end of its life, its green benefits fade. If it ends up in a landfill, the cells can release uh, problematic toxins, including heavy metals. And recycling the battery can be hazardous business, warns a materials scientist, Dana Thompson, of the University of Leicester over in England. Cut too deep into a Tesla cell or in the wrong place, and it can short-circuit 
combust and release toxic fumes. One in five electric vehicle owners in California actually are switching back to gas because charging their cars is a huge hassle. People are just wondering, what is the future of these electric cars? Look, here's how it works. 20% of electric vehicle owners in California replaced their cars with gas once they realized that the amount of charging time was just not convenient. In roughly three minutes, you can fill a tank of a Ford Mustang and have enough range for 300 miles with a V8 engine. But for the Mustang Mach-E, an hour plugged into a household outlet gave Bloomberg automotive analyst Kevin Tynan just three miles of range. Wow. Here's the problem that nobody thinks about. It's that electric car owners are starting to realize that their cars don't work in cold weather. I love this next story, but don't misunderstand why. I don't revel in the suffering of others. I do not revel or have uh, schadenfreude when other people encounter difficulty that I could have predicted. It's not part of this. I have known because of my extensive tech background and knowledge that one of the worst things for batteries is cold weather. If you want to make a battery as as inefficient as possible, you put it in the freezer for a while. By the same token, exorbitantly high temperatures can do the same thing, but the problem there is the tendency to explode. But batteries, lithium-ion batteries, the kind of batteries that are rechargeable and in every device, including electric cars, just cease to function when it gets cold. And this is something that electric car buyers are not often told. If there's one thing electric vehicle owners are learning now, It's that extremely cold temperatures are likely going to lead to frustration if they don't take extra special care of their battery in their electric car. Disgruntled owners of the Tesla Model 3 have been widespread on social media talking about numerous issues they've had with cold weather on their cars. People have complained about battery range draining, Model 3 door handles freezing up, yeah, the door handles pop out because of the battery. If the battery's not operating, you can't open the doors. The batteries don't hold a charge. You can't charge them. They don't hold a charge unless you've got a heated garage. And if that happens, then your range goes way down. The battery doesn't perform well in cold. You would think it'd just be the exact opposite. You would think cold weather in heat-producing elements that as cold as it can be would be better because it dissipates the heat. But there are all kinds of moving parts inside lithium-ion batteries, including the ions. And it's cold weather that freezes the cathode in there. It makes it pretty much a solid rather than a jelly. And there's no way for for the ions to go, and therefore you've got no electricity. And you know what else happens in cold weather? There's no wind. And when there's no wind, you can't power the power plant. So... Saving the world, you can't get in your car and start it and drive it very far, and your electricity won't be there anyway to charge your car because wind power doesn't overcome cold. And what happens when you get rid of that battery-powered car? You, you, you dump it. Who knows what happens to that battery? And now you're going back to driving a uh, fossil fuel-driven car. It's incredible. 
Uh, Luann is right on this in West Virginia. Luann, Reedsville, West Virginia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Mega dittos for keeping Russia's memory alive. Amen. Thank you. Um, The reason I called is because battery, well, electric cars are not going to work here in West Virginia. For one thing, we have two seasons, winter and road construction. The (laughs) other thing is... The other thing is, we live in the Appalachian Mountains. We need high-powered gasoline vehicles to make it up and down these mountains and around these curves just to get where we're going. And electric cars aren't going to do it. Yeah, see, it's 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 not practical for all these places, and that's what's that's what's forgotten because. You know, the, the progressives and the elites think one size fits all. What goes on in New York City will work totally well in Appalachia. Well, that's not the case. And you know it because you see the mountains and the hills around where you're where you're living. And you understand that that little Tesla trying to get up a hill is going to be in really rough shape. That's Luann in Reedsville, West Virginia. Spot on. Oh, Laura is in South Carolina. Says here, Laura, that you were at Dan's Bake Sale. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I was. And uh, this is a first time caller. It made me giggle when I thought about that because I remember that people saying that so long ago. <laughs> um, but I just want in memory of Rush, I was at that bake sale and I, I listened to him leading up to that bake sale. And I'm young. I was going to school at CSU at the time and working part time and listening to Dan complain about how he doesn't have money and on and on and on. And um, it formed me to know that if you're going to do it, you got to rely on yourself. And today, I'm a business owner, a successful business in South Carolina, and it's all because of Rush. That is awesome. That is is awesome, Laura. And that is testimony to the lasting impact of Dan's Bake Sale and to Rush's message. For sure. Yeah, I was just, I, I when you said that it was his anniversary, I went, holy cow, and it just made me <laughs> smile. So I just wanted to call in and say that. All the best. That is so wonderful, Laura, and we appreciate your uh, your memory of being there at the bake sale and then connecting these years later. Uh, so many of us grew up listening to Rush. So many of us uh, experienced the ebbs and flows from, from Dan's bake sale to to uh to you know bill clinton going after rush to you know any number of things and it was amazing to see the lasting impact rush has had on the landscape not just of 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 media and 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 of politics but of the national conversation in this country it'll i don't think ever be replicated in a way that rush was able to connect with the people in this country plenty more straight ahead I'm Brett Witterbull, your guide host today on the Rush Limbaugh Show. It is the Rush Limbaugh Show. I am Brett Witterbull, your guide host today on the EIB Network. A lot of people dubbed Dan's Bake Sale as the conservative Woodstock. And since we're revisiting that today on the eve of the 28th anniversary, we thought we'd take you back to the 60s. And on today's Road Trip with Rush, every Friday we're adding a new song to a playlist that we're building with the audience of all the great bumper music and the commentary that went with it. Today, we'll go for a walk in the Black Forest. Now, speaking of the bumper rotation, this is a song that's been in it for a long time, but we haven't had it in a long time. It's it's somehow magically found its way back into the rotation. And yes, I recognize it plain as day. I'm drawing a metal block. 
That's Horst Jankowski. That's right. Horst Jankowski in a walk in the Black Forest. That's right. from the 60s. Exactly right. Every bumper song in the rotation, practically every one I chose from my own personal preferences and those I thought would sound good, uh, used as bumpers. I haven't picked a bumper song since I lost my hearing. We don't have a current tune in the bumper rotation because I don't know any of it well enough to know whether it sounds good or not. And nobody on the staff has volunteered to help. So we're stuck with bumper music. I know there isn't any current music worth being in the bumper rotation, right? Outstanding. Horst Jankowski, a walk in the Black Forest, Rush Limbaugh, there on your uh, on, on your amazing road trip with Rush today. Let's 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 head on out to somebody very special. Scott is a listener, and Scott, it says here you were at Dan's Bake Sale back in uh, a, uh, 1993. Welcome to the Rush Limbaugh Show. Hi, thanks for having me so much. Yes, back in '93, it's hard to believe it was 28 years ago. What do you remember most about it, and uh, who were you with? Well, um. Who I was with was my girlfriend of about five months, and uh, about five months later, after Dan's big sale, we got married, and we've been married now 28 years, so not only the 28-year anniversary of Dan's big sale, but coming up on uh, 28-year anniversary. Um, what I remember is just driving down from, at the time, my hometown in Cheyenne, going down kind of early, which I'm glad about, because re-listening to Rush talk about his friends who flew into the airport in Cheyenne and couldn't get down, I'm kind of I'm glad we went early. Just just the camaraderie and the fellowship, it's kind of like being with like-minded people. and just I just remember, like, all day being there and just feeling like my adrenaline is just like you're running a race, but just you're having so much fun with people, meeting people, hugging people. I remember getting the, the issue of the Limbaugh letter. I remember... Um, I think uh, ate something in the Brennan's tent, one of his restaurants that he <laughs> loved, and just taking pictures by people who were <laughs> um, selling cool things, uh, meeting Dan, buying some his cookies. It was just, it was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful day. So let me let me ask you: what, Obviously, you were into it. Was your girlfriend at the time into it, or was she just kind of along for the ride? Your wife now is, was she along for the ride, or was she uh, was I she think- uh, a ditto head? I think at that time she was kind of maybe halfway along for the ride, but I, I think also she, um, she also, she also became a ditto head soon after. I mean, we, we met and and I I started loving Rush because of the TV show, and then I started listening to his radio show, and then so we our when we first started dating, we we watched the TV show together, and then we started listening to Rush. Not too soon after that, we moved out of state, and I just remember like recording a show on cassettes and then after coming back from school or work listening to it together so yeah but she um it wasn't like it was something new to her or she had to make this great conversion i think for both of us it was kind of like it's like a light bulb going off and for me it was like hearing stuff that you already believe the common sense stuff that you it just was like a light turned on and it was the same for her um, um just the light bulb turn on, just learning so much. Just in, in, you know, for us, he was a member of the family and a, and a good friend. You know, uh, uh, Scott, I'm so happy you checked in with us today, and and it, it goes to prove something that you and your wife. What's your wife's first name? Ginger. 
Ginger. So so Scott and Ginger, a happy uh, upcoming anniversary, obviously. It's going to be coming around the corner here. Uh, we're so happy you were there at the at the bake sale and sharing your experiences uh, of your time there at, at Dan's Bake Sale. And it's clear that you both have incredibly good taste because you liked each other. And you also liked Rush, which is which is I mean that that's a home run right there, right right out of the park. Yeah, it was just everything about it was just just hearing and just talking about what he was talking about each day up until his passing. It's really hard now with everything just seeming to go south. And I mentioned to her last night that um, you know on his TV show that segment they have on his website now where he was on his TV show talking about how the media gave him a fair shake and yeah. did a good job reporting on Dan's bake sale. And I, I, I mentioned to her, I said, I think it's because back then they were just trying to figure him out, but they weren't, they wouldn't have done that, uh, you know, later on years in 94, 95, 96, because it wasn't right. too soon after, too late after that, where Bill Clinton calls KMOX and yeah. complains <laughs> about him needing a truth detector. And you know, <laughs> you know, it's not too soon after that, we're like, Hey, we got to try to figure out how to stop this guy. But, uh, I think they were just trying to figure them out, but uh, yeah, Great I, I really am encouraged by just well, we are the majority, and we are all family. And uh, thanks so it. much for doing a great job hosting the show. Hey, I, pre- I appreciate you being there. Don't forget if you've got any photographs or, or memories or pictures, Scott, you and, and Ginger, or anybody else out there, Dan's Bake Sale at eibnet.com. We're looking for your uh, for your memories, your pictures uh, of, of the event that day. All the best to you, my friend, and we certainly appreciate you. Uh, checking in with us. I am Brett Witterbull, your guide host today on the Rush Limbaugh Show on the EIB Network. And it is the uh, Rush Limbaugh Show. I'm Brett Witterbull, your guide host today on the program. Uh, lots of stuff uh, still ahead, including, um, well, we'll talk about identity politics in that in that next uh, hour. But the new podcast series, Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the golden EIB microphone, is available to listen to right now. Every episode will share more stories of our beloved Rush by those he worked with, his friends, and his family. Tunnel to Towers Foundation and MyPillow are sponsors. James Golden is host. And if the first episode is any indication, this is going to be must-listen. I hope you get the chance. And, in fact, you can go right over to RushLimbaugh.com and, and hop on the uh, the site and get that first uh, episode right there. And it is going to be a phenomenal listen. You're going to love it. It's Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the golden EIB microphone. I'm so happy James has done this because he's uh, he's taking us behind that curtain and letting us see a, a dynamic that many people wouldn't have been familiar with. I mean, it was remarkable earlier in this hour to have uh, Denise and, and Diana on uh, the program, two, uh, two EIB folks who uh, have done work for years and years and years on the Limbaugh Letter and produced an amazing, amazing newsletter. Um, and I'm so happy to call them my friends. It has just been wonderful to spend this time on on the anniversary, the eve of the anniversary of the 28th uh, year since Dan's Bake Sale. We'll take your phone calls straight ahead on Open Line Friday, 800-282-2882. Brett Winterbull on the EIB Network. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. 
when I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, from this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. It really is the fastest three hours in all of media. Hour three underway. It is Open Line Friday. Very special edition, the eve of the 28th anniversary of Dan's Bake Sale. And we certainly want to uh, hear from you at 800-282-2882, especially if you were at Dan's Bake Sale. We'd like to uh, hear your thoughts, your reminiscences. But it being Open Line Friday, obviously, you uh, you are free to opine on uh, all the big stories that are out there moving. But if I may for a moment, on the Dan's Bake Sale front, uh, it's a very special day. And uh, we have uh, set up something very special. Uh, the, all the callers on the air today are getting a free subscription to the Limbaugh Letter. And you can send your reminiscences to Dan's Bake Sale at eibnet.com. Dan's Bake Sale at eibnet.com. If, in fact, you were there, you have pictures. We'd love to uh, share them with the rest of this amazing audience. It was quite an accomplishment uh, on that day. And uh, Rush had a, absolutely the time of his life. Well, somebody who's had some challenges when it comes to policy uh, accomplishments is Kamala Harris. It would be 59 days since she was designated the point person on the border. She's still not made it down to the border. She still hasn't gone down and, and experienced all that is the border. And now there is a, a piece running, uh, Anita Kumar, uh, posting this just in these last days, how Kamala Harris became a victim of the barriers she broke. So she's a victim as the vice president of the United States. Uh, she's a uh, she's a victim of the barriers uh, that that she broke. 
Uh, Kumar notes in this piece, Harris carried many firsts with her into the vice presidency, the daughter of an Indian mother and a black Jamaican father. She is the first woman, black person, Asian American, Indian American, biracial woman to serve as vice president of the United States. Those firsts have come with their unique set of pressures, primarily for her to embrace her history-making role. And after nearly four months in office, Harris faces criticism that she hasn't struck the right balance, that she's focused more often on being the United States' first black vice president than the first Asian-American one. Well, I mean, those are issues that she can certainly uh, navigate and will decide how she wants to navigate those. But what about the job, first and foremost, out of that, which is the vice presidency of the United States? I, I just, I would think you would want to be working on the issues at the border and a number of challenges out there. And we're not really seeing a, a whole lot to be shown as a result of that, right? Well, Rush had thoughts on Kamala Harris. They went like this. Dinesh D'Souza had been looking into Kamala Harris, and he had a tweet. The privilege Kamala Harris has enjoyed throughout her life was built on the backs of 200 black slaves forced to work on five plantations by her ancestor, Hamilton Brown. I've yet to hear any sympathy from the left for these black lives, which evidently don't matter at all. But apparently her... Well, look, this is not apparently. We've all known it. Those of us who have studied Kamala Harris, those of us who looked into her background, we know she's not African-American. She doesn't have slave blood. She's not down for the struggle. She's not... not none of that. She's, uh, she doesn't have any attachment like Obama didn't. Obama didn't have any direct attachment to the struggle. He didn't have a direct attachment to Selma, even though he went there trying to make it look like he did. She doesn't either. In fact, her family was wealthy in Jamaica, and they owned slaves. And it's, it's not just Dinesh D'Souza. Jamel Bowie in the New York Times finally admits Kamala Harris might be descended from a slave owner. Now, Jamel Bowie is a male. He does not give his readers the slightest indication of how large a slave owner Hamilton Brown was. But Dinesh D'Souza has done the investigating and found out. And he's published the names. 200 plus slaves owned by Kamala Harris's ancestor Hamilton Brown in Jamaica. 1817. Hamilton Brown and his uh, plantation are one of the largest planters in Jamaica. Brown now has a, t a town named after him. It's called Brownstown in Jamaica. Got another tweet here from Dinesh D'Souza. said the left has been pulling down statues of George Washington, the founder of the country, because he owned slaves. They've been pulling down statues of Thomas Jefferson because he owned slaves. They've been pulling down statues of Alexander Hamilton because he owned slaves. Now they want to put in the Oval Office, once Biden keels over, a woman who is a direct beneficiary of five slave plantations and more than 200 slaves. That would be Kamala Harris. Folks, there's no denying this. Her family were big slave owners. Five slave plantations, 200 slaves. The family wealth was created by virtue of these plantations. So the Democrats are out there ripping down all these founders. They owned slaves. Now they're going to put somebody in the Oval Orifice who owned slaves. Or whose, uh, whose family did. And here, 
just to show you, just to show you that somebody's figured out maybe too late that they've got a problem here with Kamala Harris and the African-American vote. Let's go to CNN. This is when they were talking about this. I told you they were having a little panel discussion over, uh-oh, oh, no, what do we do now? Kamala Harris, not black vote, uh, black voters expressing some problems. So let's go back. August 5th of 2020, this is National Association Black Journalists and Hispanic Journalists Virtual Convention. Yes, and by the way, what you all know, but most people don't know, unlike the African-American community, with notable exceptions, the Latino community is an incredibly diverse community with incredibly different attitudes about different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the African-Americans, they're monolithic. They don't, they, there's no differences. They're, they're just, you know, Hispanics, you people, you're really diverse. But the blacks, no way, dude, no way. I guess James Clyburn was cringing then. And let's go back to May 22nd, when Plugs appeared with my old buddy Charlemagne the God. On his Breakfast Club show. You got more questions, but I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. Uh, I have a theory on Kamala Harris. I'll tell you, nobody jams more into a program than this one. I'm t- I think if you look at her record, why is she on the ticket? I've been asking myself. She didn't get any votes. She's not pop. Why is she on the ticket? If you look at her record as DA and Attorney General of California, San Francisco, she punished her political opponents. She rewarded political supporters. She helped enshrine the one-party permanency in, uh, in, in California. And as president, she'd do the same thing, which at the national level means moving hard left, disempowering states— and businesses and individuals and centralizing power in D.C. where they intend to control decision-making for generations. The thing that's incredible about that, though, is it's readily apparent that she's not functioning as that sort of enforcer. Uh, four months, five months into the presidency, the vice presidency of the United States. I mean, she, she's she been rewarded for helping to try to take the country hard left, but... It's a bad look if if you're trying to avoid having anything to do with the border when you've been tasked with it. That is a that is a major challenge that she kind of walked away from. Let's return out to the phones on uh, on open line Friday. Bill is in Las Vegas. Bill, welcome to the Rush Limbaugh show. Good morning. Uh, thanks for having me on. Mega dittos. Yes, sir. From uh, from Vegas. So to be- Brent, I've been listening to all of this about. Uh, the bake sale, mm-hmm. and it's it's great reliving it, but there's more to the backstory that isn't being told here, mm-hmm. which provided Rush uh, with an opportunity to show the absurdity of the left, and that is, there was a bake sale before the bake sale. That's there right. was a young girl that mm-hmm. held a bake sale, mm-hmm. made some money, and then presented the money to President Clinton. And what what just really irked Rush was that Clinton took the money from her and kept the money and, you know, kind of led people to believe that we could have bake sales to work our way out of the. Oh, that's right. No, no, that was that was that was the impetus for the bake sale. Right. That was that was the impetus for this, because Rush was doing the story. It was out of uh, it was out of Iowa. I think Davenport, Washington School, sixth graders in Iowa, they 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 raised sixty four dollars and forty one cents. 
selling cookies and, and goodies and sent it to Bill Clinton, who then he didn't return it. He kept it to retire it to the dead or put it in his pocket or whatever. But that was that was the impetus for the, the, the bake sale conversation that Diana raised with with Rush when the caller called in and talked about how it was he was not able to uh, afford a, uh, a Limbaugh letter subscription and was getting bootlegs from his friend. So, yeah, right. that, that, that is the foundational thing that, pre- that presented this entire conversation to begin with. And you're, you're right on. And it's important to note that $64.41, and the president kept it. He kept it uh, off of a bake sale for the debt. And you know what's you know really incredible? The deficit. You know what's incredible? The deficit back then? This is, this is pennies. You're talking about $290 billion in deficit. Man, we, we could retire that in a minute today with the Federal Reserve just printing some more money. I'm kidding. But that's, that's it. You're exactly right on, though, Bill. And it's important to remember where the germination point was. Uh, terrific that you uh, checked in with us. I see that we've got some calls on hold wanting to talk about the bake sale as well as the uh, big stories of the day. Uh, our number, 800-282-2882. I am Brett Witterbull. I am your guide host today on the Rush Limbaugh Show on the EIB Network. It is the Rush Limbaugh Show. I'm Brett Witterbull, your guide host today, and I'm just trying to choke back uh, the laughter that I'm about to uh, to break into here at this uh, story. Virginia Little League coaches must attend anti-racist training, and, and it's not not so much the anti-racist training that that I'm, I'm I'm laughing thinking about, but the complications that are about to manifest. You'll understand in in just moments. Coaches at a Virginia Little League. Uh, are encouraged to teach themselves to perceive their own internalized racism and look for, quote, potential institutional racism in the community. The community outside outside the baseball diamond? So, like, around the town, like, going up and down the block? How? Okay. So they're supposed to look for potential institutional racism in the community. Coaches are also asked to be on the lookout for moments that they can use anti-racism learning opportunities. So they want the coaches to have this training, and then the coaches will be present on the diamond coaching the kids in sports and then be able to then walk the streets as sort of a patrol, I guess, and point things out to kids as potential anti-racism learning opportunities. The Alliance is also offering a quiz that allows high school athletes to assess their privilege. So being a child of a parent or guardian with a college degree is one example of privilege they give. Athletes and coaches can also use the website's identity wheel. The identity wheel can be utilized as well for um, understanding sex, sexual preference, race, and religion to, quote, increase awareness of how privilege operates to normalize some identities over others. So, so, so this is a little league that's now gone woke. Peace out of the Washington Free Beacon in Virginia. The coaches have to go to this training, have to teach the kids how to use the identity wheel and all that sort of, of, of stuff. So I understand that there is something called critical race theory. Have you heard of critical race theory? Of course you have. So would this be critical base theory, meaning it's baseball, it's Little League? Would you take the wheel, 
So I understand we've got three strikes, you got three outs, and you got nine innings. So are we going to adjust the way the game is played? Here comes Joe. Let's look at Joe and assess. Let's turn the wheel accordingly so that Joe is now going to get six six strikes. And when he does get a hit, he goes to third instead of first. So that, okay, Joe, so you understand? Okay. Oh, here comes Wendy. Wendy, let's turn the identity wheel for Wendy. Wendy, I'm not really seeing anything here that may apply to you. Does your parent or guardian have a... Does your parent or guardian have a, a college degree of any kind? Oh, they do? Okay. What is it in? Oh, it's an MBA? Okay. Uh, Wendy is, um, Wendy's got two options here. She's either going to have two strikes or one or three strikes. Just bring her up. No matter what, head back there to the, uh, to the bench there, Wendy. I'm sorry to have to tell you you've got too much privilege to be, uh, to be, to be batting three. You lose a turn. You take, listen, run the base paths, but it won't count. We want you to feel like you've participated. Leave the mask on. In fact, give her a second mask. Run fast. you got some work to do. Rush talked about this. Not about this specifically, but he talked about what your kids are being taught about diversity. From Fox News. A school district in Wisconsin said that they will review a high school diversity class that exposed students to radical leftist thinkers and promoted a critical race theory that alleges white people are oppressors. The American diversity class was taught to students at Delavan Darien High School in Wisconsin. And one of the parents reported to Fox News that it was a white privilege class. That's that's what the class was basically oriented toward, white privilege. And what they were doing was teaching white guilt, one parent told Fox. They divide the students, and they say to the non-whites, you have been oppressed, and you're still being oppressed. The parent, who asked not to be identified, has an 18-year-old son who was enrolled in the class and became alarmed after she looked at some of the handouts provided to the students. The parent said, I felt it was indoctrination. This is a radical left agenda and ideology that's now embedded in our school. And it is and has been for a while. It's called the multicultural curriculum. And the multicultural curriculum teaches this. The multicultural curriculum is 25 or 30 years old, if not older than that. And it teaches anti-Western civ. It teaches that... White European settlers came here and started causing all the trouble. White Europeans brought with them racism, sexism, environmental destruction, homophobia, all of that. That is taught. What's happened here is a parent just caught on to it. And I think what happened is the reason the parent caught on to it is because they brought it out from behind the curtain. Uh, This has been taught this way for a long time. Now they're just being upfront and honest. The teacher is about what is being taught rather than subtly indoctrinating the kids. They're just being upfront and honest about what they're teaching and what it is. And they're calling it white privilege, and they're calling it oppression, and they're saying it still exists, and that there's segregation, and they divide the class up that way. The parents said the students were taught, if you're white, you're oppressing. If you're not white, you're a victim. Yeah? Isn't that liberalism today? I don't mean to sound know-it-all. I'm just It's not a surprise to me. In fact, I'm a little bit 
encouraged that a parent finally sees what's going on, called attention to it. Pointed it out, called it out. Why are we having tryouts? Spin that wheel of identity. Are you or why? Why does he have to try out for the team? I I I, I don't know. No, he he checks four boxes. Make him the ace. He's the ace right there. Can he throw a ball? Doesn't matter. What position are you playing? Right field. Let's let's spin the wheel. Let's spin the wheel of up. Let's spill. Uh huh. No, you're not playing. You're not playing right field. I'm sorry to tell you that you're not. You are. Uh, you're going to be sitting. Uh, you're going to be sitting out there. We're going to make you. Well, you're the scorekeeper. Get up there on the. Uh, get up there on the on, on the board. Uh, you're going to be keeping score. No, you don't get to play today. I'm sorry. We have a chart. We have a chart. Man, no, there's no manager. A manager? That's asserting privilege. There is no manager. This is a community-managed baseball team. It is managed by the community of the players itself. There's a manager. That's patriarchy. We can't have... There's no... The umpire? What does he make? He rules. He makes decisions. Mmm. Oppression. No, no, no. We will have no umpires, no managers. We're not keeping score. All right? The game ends when we say it does. It's the EIB Network. Great to be here with you, with each and every one of you, and uh, a tremendous visit down memory lane. As we come to the end of the show today, we want to uh, want to play some more Rush, describing that incredible day that was Dan's bake sale. Aside from being our professor of advanced conservative studies and doctor of democracy, Rush was also a consummate storyteller. Let me tell you so, about the rain. As I'm choppering in, I see this huge thunderstorm coming in over the Rockies. And you can see rain. You ought to see rain from a cloud in the air. You can see it. I said, "Uh uh-oh, it's headed right for the bake sale. I said, oh, darn, it's headed right for the bake sale. And as soon as we, as soon as the chopper touched down, it started. So we're driving over in uh, in a motorcade surrounded by eight mounted police officers, horseback mounted police officers. And we drive over there, and it's just coming down. It's hail. It's coming down in buckets. And they meet me, and they say, Rush, uh, we're going to have to wait. It's raining out there. We can't take you out until it stops raining. I said, I'm not waiting here any longer than 20 minutes. In 20 minutes, the sky is opened, the clouds parted, and brilliant sunshine rained down on Old Town Square in Fort Collins. And I took the stage. And during, and it was a violent 20-minute storm, and nobody left. In fact, it energized the crowd. They had to huddle close together for warmth, companionship. 20,000-plus were cuddling in Fort Collins. People say that this show, you know, survives on a platform of hate, and nothing could be further from the truth. Why, it's just the opposite. I have this profound love for people, and I have, I have great expectations of people. I have confidence in people. I think that most people want to do the best they can and want to be right and, and want to try to do the right thing. And those people are the ones that are made fun of and impugned and laughed at in the media today. And so here was a chance. Here, 35 to 65,000 of them get together in an area too small to hold all of them. No vandalism. No disorder, no civil disobedience, no theft, no problems. The cops said they had nothing. The toughest thing the cops had to do was get me to the stage and get me off the stage. 
Some people traveled from where Angola. There were people there from Guam. There were people from, from, from the United Kingdom. Think of the economic boost the United States got because of this event. And it wasn't one government program. It wasn't one bit of policy from Washington or from Bill Clinton that caused this to happen. Here's the truth of the matter. These people show up, 35000 to 65000 They drop $100 in and around Fort Collins. That, my friends, is called trickle-down economics. If Bill Clinton had shown up, this is what I told the assembled multitudes, if Bill Clinton had been there that day instead of me, 90 to 95 percent of the people there wouldn't have been there. In fact, somebody in the front row shouted, 100 percent wouldn't be here, Rush! And instead of you dropping a hundred bucks and spending it on things you choose in and around Fort Collins, Bill Clinton would have left with your hundred bucks. You wouldn't have had a hundred bucks to spend. He would try to take it from... That's exactly how to illustrate the differences in approach. And it was a sight to behold. Let me tell you another quick little story. You might say, Rush, were there any protesters there? Yeah, there were a couple. Some outfit tried to set up an anti-Rush booth, but nobody paid them any attention, so they shut it down. There was a guy running around, one guy running around with an anti-Rush sign and a pro-Clinton and Gore sign. Nobody hassled him. They talked to him. Nobody threw anything at him. Nobody taunted him. Nobody insulted him. And this guy is quoted in the paper as saying he was surprised. Everybody was nice to him. There wasn't much of that anyway. I mean, I've heard five total protesters, maybe seven, were there, and they left. I mean, there, there was nothing for them to do. Nobody responded to what they were doing. Nobody took the bait. I'm telling you, you were great. Everybody out there, you were. It's amazing. Think of this. Thirty-five to 65,000 people. There's not one story of vandalism to report. This little paper may make one up, but there isn't one. Just kidding. Here you've got 35,000 people all sardined inside the old town square. You cannot avoid bumping into somebody, right? It's not possible. But every, you know what the most popular word was on Saturday after? Excuse me. Excuse me must have been uttered a million times. Every time somebody jostled somebody, oh, excuse me, when you couldn't help it. You put most people in a crowd like this, and the baby boom that would result nine months from yesterday or Saturday would have been, that's how close together they were. I mean, a lot of stuff could have been going on, and nobody would have known about it. Uh, but I tell you, it was great. A moment of incredible history. As only Rush could deliver it. Sandy is in Seattle, Washington. Sandy, welcome to the show. What's on your mind today? Hi, Brett. Thank you so much for taking my call. Dan's Bake Sale Dittos. I was I was there um, about 50 feet from the stage. Wow. Um, saw Rush come in on helicopter, and I have the wooden cookie and a picture with uh, Bo and Tony LoBianco to prove it. It was It was a magical day. It really was. That is outstanding. What what sticks out most in your mind as you look back 28 years ago? Is is there a particular moment uh, of that uh, event that, that, that you think about and, and reflect on? Well, in looking back, I hopped on a charter flight from Dallas to Cheyenne. Um, I remember I was an introvert, and I found Rush, and oh my gosh, he just changed my life, transformed my personality. Um, we all have a voice. And they're all worth using. 
uh, he taught me that. But I think the friendliness of everybody bumping into somebody and excuse me, I'm sorry, you know, oh my gosh, it was like conservative utopia. And I do remember when everyone cleared out at the end of the day, no trash. It's like we weren't even there. Um, I don't, it was just an unbelievably friendly experience. Uh, I w- it was less than 24-hour trip for me. Wow. And um, my husband at the time did not want me to go. That, it was the best decision I ever made <laughs> to, to go. And, wow. No, it was just a step in the process. But um, fr- listen to Rush from the beginning. And um, my life is just, I miss him every day. But thank you for carrying on the legacy, for taking my call. I'm super nervous. But Oh, um, you're great. You're yeah, great. It, and th- and thank you thank you for, for sharing with us your, your memory. And make sure you send, a, if you can, send a copy of those pictures to Dan's Bake Sale at eibnet.com because uh, that's, that, that's something really worth holding on to, Sandy. And I appreciate you being out there. Through my photos right now and find it. Thank you so much. Take care. Uh, and enjoy the memory tomorrow because uh, tomorrow is the 28th. Uh, anniversary of of the Dan's Bake Sale and uh, a remarkable time for everybody to get together and to spend that time with Rush. And I know how much it meant to him to see each and every one of you out there uh, loving this country as much as he did. Mary is in Detroit, Michigan. Mary, welcome to the Rush Limbaugh Show. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. Going back to the original story on the on the show today. The the problems with Israel versus Hezbollah, actually it's versus Iran, reminded me I am old enough to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis when there was a Kennedy who had some some guts. Mm -hmm. John F. Kennedy, and I actually remember where I was standing looking at the TV when he said this. He said, one missile fired anywhere toward the United States or its allies. Mm-hmm. We will content, we will consider to be a declaration of war by the Soviet Union against the United States, and we will respond accordingly. What a um, what a far cry from what we have today, Mary. Absolutely, absolutely. Also, <laughs> I I, um, I I also remember Dan's bake sale. I wasn't there, but I do remember listening <laughs> all about it when it when it was actually happening and thinking, wow. Yeah. <laughs> It was an incredible unifying moment. I think the people who were there have been joined now with the people who know about it and who remember it. And I know when we mentioned Dan's Bake Sale starting last week about the uh, the memories of this, I know people immediately started getting very, very excited because it was uh, it was one of those great signature moments in the history of Rush Limbaugh and the Rush Limbaugh Show. And, Mary, I appreciate you uh, patiently holding on and checking in with us today. Thank you so much. God bless. Bye-bye. You too. That's Mary checking in. Got plenty more straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. I'm Brett Witterbull, your guide host today on the Rush Limbaugh Show. It is the Rush Limbaugh Show on the EIB Network. Brett Witterbull, your guide host today. And uh, I want to take a, one call here. Let me talk to uh, Mike in Toledo, Ohio, joining us uh, on the line now. Mike, welcome to the program. What's on your mind today, sir? Thank you, Brett. Uh, first, I want to say I'm actually from Temperance, Michigan, but I want to say Mega Dittos from Temperance, Michigan. I'm real close to Toledo, 1.9 miles. But sure. I want to thank you for carrying on Rush's uh, Rush's word and uh, just all you're doing and all all the other villain hosts. But I, I basically I wanted to start out by um, offering my sincere condolences to um, Catherine Limbaugh and, and and all of you um, that were very close to Rush. Um, I also wanted to um, tell a story about how I actually 
found out about Rush. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was quite a few years ago. Um, my dad, who I lost in 2007, um, we were sitting having a drink together, and it was a um, local. It was a news story that came on the uh, the, radio, the TV rather, and. I was almost clueless, and I, I wasn't really paying attention back at that time. And my dad said, "Hey, you really need to you really need to find a good news source and and pay attention to what's going on in the world." So I was really not politically involved. And my dad suggested I start listening to Rush, which I did, and it changed my life. Um, I looked forward to listening to Rush. Um, I valued his opinion. I when something big would happen in politics, I couldn't wait to tune in on Monday to find out what Rush had to say. And she, he just absolutely, absolutely changed my life. Sure, absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, I, I just I look forward to it. Look forward to hearing his, his uh, life wisdom and political views, and just I, I, I miss him tremendously. I, I just uh, all I really wanted to say. I've been trying to call in for a lot of years, and I just yeah. wish I. Have the opportunity to talk to Big Man himself. Mike, listen, uh, he's hearing you, and we hear you, and we appreciate your support uh, of this program. And uh, we're happy you found him, and we're happy you connected, and we're happy that he connected with you. And and I just um, I just want to say thank you so much for checking in today, and and for sharing your story. And uh, it is it is most appreciated by everybody here on the team. Thank you very much, sir. All right, thank you for the. Uh for the uh, subscription to the letter, too. I'll truly value it. You're very welcome. Look, as we conclude our anniversary edition of Open Line Friday, celebrating Dan's bake sale and all the memories, we'd like to imagine that today EIB's high note is dedicated to us by Rush himself. Here's a clip of the Maha speaking from the stage to all of us. I love you all from the bottom of my heart. I want you to, I, I appreciate this more than you can possibly imagine. I really do. You all have done such a change around in my life, and I want to encourage you to continue to be yourselves and to be happy, and above all, don't get down. I know the dominant media culture makes it look like what you and I believe in is a minority, but it isn't. We are the majority of thinkers in the country. You hear that cheering? That is rock star cheering. That, that is rock show cheering. And I have no doubt that Rush is still saying all of that to all of us now from where he is. Remember, we're collecting photos from Dan's bake sale to prove not only that the day did happen, it was a wonderfully positive event. So if you have any photo memories, you can email them to dansbakesale at eibnet.com. Dan's, Dan with an S, right? Dan's Bake Sale at eibnet.com to uh, help us memorialize and remember uh, that very, very special day. Now, Bo Snerdley was at Dan's Bake Sale, and he joined this program last week to speak with uh, our good friend Todd Herman about his new podcast series. It's quite a tribute to our beloved Rush, sharing memorable moments of working together and the kind of person that Rush was. My Pillow and Tunnel to Towers Foundation are both sponsoring this 12-episode series. You'll find a link to the first podcast episode on our website at rushlimbaugh.com, rushlimbaugh.com, and wherever you listen to, uh, to the podcasts that are out there. It is, it is so great to be here with you. 28 years since Dan's Bake Sale. And uh, I remember 
I wasn't yet on the team here, but I remember following it closely, listening uh, to the coverage afterwards, and I remember all those uh, special special moments that were shared by tens of thousands of people who then went home and shared it with tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of more. And here we are all gathered today on the eve of the 28th anniversary. Brett Woodable on the EIB Network. And I am Brett Woodable, your guide host on the EIB Network on the Rush Limbaugh Show today. It, it, it has been an absolute pleasure for this week uh, getting the opportunity to sit here behind the, the golden EIB microphone and uh, uh, speak with each and every one of you throughout this week. And uh, I, I don't want to do this last. I want to do this first. And it's this. I want to thank uh, all the amazing people who are working so hard here at the EIB Network to make this show happen every single day, regardless of the guide host or who it is that's actually talking into the microphone. Mike and Allie and Greg and Joe and Keith and today Denise, uh, Denise May and Diana Alaco, who, who came by today to share with us their, their thoughts on Dan's bake sale, 28th anniversary tomorrow. Um, and I would encourage folks to go over to RushLimbaugh.com. Uh, and 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 enjoy all the great content there. I would encourage everyone to subscribe to the Limbaugh Letter um, because it is it is so important to stay in touch. And my final sort of message is, you know, as we get into the weekend, we're all going to go our separate ways. And you know, come next week, we'll be doing all kinds of different things here. But let me just say this: that event happened. That event in in Colorado happened 28 years ago tomorrow. You didn't imagine it. And what the left loves to do is make you think you're the only person out there that thinks the way you think and that you're nuts. You're not. You're patriots. So I don't I don't care where you end up or what you're doing. You were part of this. And that's what is hugely important. And I was so happy to be with you all this week. And I'm looking forward to next week as well. Thank you so much. I'm Brett Witterbull. This is the Rush Limbaugh Show. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.